I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 14, Modern Medicine and Science Need Help, with Dr. Michel Akkad. So, Michel, you're a doctor, you're a philosopher, you're a scientist. Um, now, I came across you because you teach the Philosophy of Nature and Philosophical Anthropology course for uh, Pontifex University as part of the uh, Master of Sacred Arts program because I wanted artists to understand a little more deeply what it is they're drawing and painting because that affects how you paint. Now, I want to go into a little to an area that's slightly different today. I want to talk about how philosophy can have an impact on medicine and science, because I know this is something that you're involved in deeply. You blog, you write, you publish articles in philosophy uh, magazines and in uh, medical magazines, medical journals. Um, so let's just begin with a very broad question and then we'll just see where we go. First of all, how can the study of man, uh, philosophical anthropology, if you like, how can that have an impact on medicine? Uh, today, do you think? Why, why would it benefit uh, a doctor who probably doesn't study man in this way, generally, to, to learn about St. Thomas, for example? Yeah, no, very good question. And um, I didn't know the answer to, uh, to that question, except that I was um, encountering a lot of uh, problems in medicine. And by reflecting on them, I recognized that those problems were properly speaking, philosophical, that medicine itself, at least the way it understands itself and the way it's, you know, uh, proceeding with research and, and so forth, um, cannot provide the answers to the problems that it is confronting. Um, so that, that was my, um, my impetus to study philosophy. Um, okay. It was a few years ago. And I... Um, at that time, I was already writing uh, about medicine, blogging, so forth, and it seemed clear to me that there was no real method by which doctors um, conceive of something as being uh, diseased or healthy. Mm -hmm. The concept of health is not um, articulated in medical school at all. Now that is staggering, that, that you think the whole purpose of being a doctor is to restore health and you want to know what it is. And you're saying that it's not discussed. It's always described in a, what's it, illness, in a negative or something, is it? Or right, that? and not even that. And, and even, oh. the, even the illness, I mean, it seems that it's, um, what, what got, got me interested on this is I, I um, you know, I became, um, uh, aware and sensitized to the fact that maybe uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, doctors were coming with guidelines to define high blood pressure. And they would say, well, hypertension, we've decided it's anything above 140 over 90. And then five years later, they would come back and say, no, 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 we've changed our mind. Hypertension is anything that's above 135 over this. You know? And that seemed a little bit weird. You know, I mean, yes. if it's a disease, shouldn't it be something sort of objective? I mean, do we have to rely on a committee of doctors uh, getting together? And, and then each time they, they would do this, millions of people would be 
all of a sudden either healthier or sick or <laughs> you know one or the other and then it wasn't just high blood pressure it was everything it was cholesterol it was um, obesity obesity right you can pick a number and then if you're above that number you're obese if you're below the number you're healthy you know all these things that more and more the more i looked the more i, I could find this pattern of uh, um uh, you know uh, disease by by decree or by <laughs> I, I just i just thought of a money-making scheme for you michelle uh, the the new diet plan is just don't change your diet at all just wait until the definition changes. that's right that's right or, correct <laughs> or, or i would say you know i would joke i mean if you want your hypertension cure just move to canada where the guidelines are different <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so um so i um that's how i got interested and i could tell that uh, uh Medicine, you know, the uh, academia, academic medicine was not going to provide answers to those questions, and and it needed a a fundamental rethinking about what health is. And then, if you want to think about what health is, then you have to decide, you know, reflect on what what is man, right? What is uh, mm -hmm. um, what is man? But the whole thing has a has a history that maybe listeners to your podcast will be familiar with by now. Uh, because modern medicine, um, at least modern medical education, um, is predicated on a very dualistic understanding of man that goes back to Descartes, you know, the, the, and goes back to the, mid, the beginning of the modern period, where essentially man's soul, if you will, has been set aside as, you know, something that's perhaps uh, of interest to religious people or uh, spiritual people. Mm -hmm. um, but then man's body is mechanical. It's a, it's, it's a machine. And we're going to consider uh, uh, medicine as um, a, a, a technologically, if you will, as you know, how do we optimize the functioning of that machine? And, and it's very um, uh, embedded in medical education. It's uh, um, you, when you do medical education, and that's the case not only in the United States, but also elsewhere in the West. In fact, in Europe, that trend began in the uh, 1850s, the middle of the 19th century. And then it was adopted uh, in the US at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, where you start medical school not by uh, defining health or reflecting on the question of health, but you start medical school by studying uh, anatomy and biochemistry, you know, the building mm. blocks of the human being and yes. how the pieces fit together like a machine and, um, and then how the machine breaks down and, um, and, and how to fix it. Now, of course, there is an aspect of being uh, an organism, whether it's a human being or an animal or even a bacterium that is mechanical. So it's not yes. to deny that there's not a mechanical aspect uh, to things, but certainly uh, organisms and, and certain, you know, and even more so human beings are more than machines. And that's an aspect that's completely neglected from medicine. And that is not just um, uh, on a scientific level, but beyond the scientific level, that idea permeates the entire medic, uh, healthcare system because it's on the basis of that idea that we have this industrialization of medical care if you will that is yes it, you know people realize it's so dysfunctional and right. it's dysfunctional because pre precisely because 
it is based on a you know you know uh, misunderstanding of what health is or what a what a human person is right could uh, are there any some examples maybe that you could give us where this has an impact um you talked about moving to Canada to get the definition of health check. <laughs> right. So um, more, more sort of ways of illustrating this, perhaps. Yeah, it, it has an impact in, um, first of all, and people don't, uh, don't think about it so much, but I think I'm, I'm acutely aware of this. The fact that doctors are licensed by the state, so you become a doctor when you're granted a license mm -hmm. by the state on the basis precisely of your technical expertise. Okay, so being a doctor, where it used to be that at least implicitly being a doctor was um, taking the Hippocratic Oath, which is very important, and I'll touch on that uh, in a little bit, because the Hippocratic Oath, uh, I think, is correct in, uh, in its understanding of what a human person is. The, the Hippocratic Oath, of course, being Hippocrates, the ancient Greek, just um, a, a creed for doctors, really. That's right, that's yes. right. It's a it's a profession because you you profess profess okay creed, yes. right it's a profession yes. I mean that's that's the origin of the term profession okay and, okay. and that's been corrupted yes. to right now profession just means expertise technical expertise yes. ah, it used to okay. be a profession because you would profess yes um, uh, that you would abide by certain precepts and and then you profess so so the um, the beginning of the Hippocratic oath um, is um, an invocation to uh, Apollo and Hygieia and the gods of health, right? So, so you yes. appeal to the gods of health that, you know, you will say such and such. So that's, that's been abandoned, uh, you know, progressively throughout the modern period, you know, in the last 100, you know, 100 150 years. Um, it's been abandoned in favor of the doctor as a technical, primarily a technical expert. And, and so on the basis of that idea, then, then it makes sense to grant a license on the basis of technical expertise. You, demonstrate, you pass a test, you demonstrate that you have the technical you know, know-how to fix things and, and whatnot. And then once you license doctors um, uh, in that way, then you can start um, organizing, you know, you, you then you're gonna view society as a bunch of human beings that whose health is not uh, according to um, the machine model, uh, are, they're all defective <laughs> in one way or another, and you want to, to optimize um, the health of people, and, and you start thinking very much in terms of uh, industrial processes. So you're going to say, okay. well, healthcare should be provided, because then healthcare becomes a, a provision of a, survey, of a technical expertise, and you want to make sure that it's provided across the board in certain ways, according to certain norms, and you're going to institute standards and you want to make sure that from an economic standpoint, it's distributed in the optimal way <laughs> and all that. And, and, and that's where you get insurance, you know, health insurance, which really is a nonsensical concept. If you understand what health is, health cannot be insured. Right. <laughs> and so, so you get the emergence of these concepts of, of health insurance, the emergence of definitions of diseases that are, you know, highly problematic, you know, and, and, and and so forth. Um, so so that's how it it impacts things. It it um, it does violence to to people's intuition about what health is, um, and that goes not only for for patients, but it actually goes for 
doctors as well, because most doctors go into medicine on, on the basis of, a, a, I think, a correct intuitive notion of what health is and what, what the point of medicine is and what the point of medical care is. They, they want to go and help people flourish, right, as human yes. beings. And then they get completely confused when they go through the process of medical education and they lose sight of what's important and then they become um, channeled into this huge... Uh, dysfunctional healthcare system. So, if, if I was to summarize this, what, what you seem to be describing is that an, a misunderstanding about the nature of the human person mm-hmm. makes the practice of medicine, medicine impersonal. It, it, that it does not take into account individual people, differences that would be recognized when you have one person in front of another seeking the health, uh, what, trying to better one trying to serve the other. Right. Um, and I just, the other thing is that I just wanted to say, we'll, we'll, we'll pause in a minute actually, but I just wanted to say that um, your description of the instinct of the doctor being good, they want to care. They, they want to care for people. They, they want to restore people to health. And their intuitive sense of what that means is right. It, that is so similar to the field that I know a little bit about, which is art, which is most people... Go into draw to go into art because they like to draw and paint, and they like to, they're looking around them, and they they're responding to the world around them. It's only when they get to the art school that all these wacky ideas uh, are fed into them, and every, you know, and they pick up the video camera or whatever it is. Um, so yes, yeah, I think I think that's right. I, I think it, it pervades our culture. You know, that yes. this, this misunderstanding of what man is pervades the culture. Right. Just hold on to that thought. I'm just going to. I'm just going to sure. pause for a moment. All right, we're back. That was a very uh, technical task needed to be doing. I had to run and go and get the power cord for my computer before the batteries ran out. <laughs> but uh, so we were talking about um, the idea, really, this p- parallel that I'd noticed between medicine and art, which I wasn't expecting in that um, people go in for the right reasons and then they get messed up when they go to university. Right. But, the re- but the reason is the same. It's, it's the, a wrong understanding of man and of nature. It's philosophical in art. And so right. it's just what you're describing. And the problem, so with medicine, uh, not only is me- medicine a victim of this misunderstanding, but unfortunately it also perpetuates it. Because, you know, we look to medicine and we look to doctors as a society, to give us a proper understand, understanding of men yes. and what, what health is, because health is, is essentially... And so, so, so medicine really amplifies, not only is it a problem, it's the same problem as in art, you, you know, for, for, for you, but also it, it, it becomes a, a perpetrator of, mm. of this misunderstanding and, and amplifies it because you know, people look to, you know, look to doctors to, for an understanding of what, if they're unhappy. And, and now more and more things have become what we call medicalized. Mm. And um, um, so, so I, I just wanted to make that point. Yes, you're right. So, so, so it requires a philosophical um, uh, reflection, um, which means a, a deeper um, uh, understanding of what what man is um, um, and what man is in the context of of nature of the cosmos because we we also recognize ourselves and science recognizes 
that human beings are related to other beings and other animals and you know we're part of this mm. this uh, whole creation uh, and in fact our constituents are natural right we're made of water and mm. <laughs> organic elements and so forth they're part of us and uh, and understanding how all that fits together re requires a philosophical uh, reflection so so that's what I uh, um, embarked upon uh, a few years ago when I wanted to to find answers to those questions and I uh, and I think I've discovered many of the answers uh, precisely as you as you mentioned in the introduction in Thomistic philosophy or Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy right so I just want to, want to move now we'll illustrate this further I think by talking more generally about science because you I know you're about to to begin creating a series of instructional videos called science needs help um, and I want to talk about that and in the doing this we, we could, we're going to sort of hop back into I think there's this connection between medicine which is uh, in part a scientific discipline <clears throat> and anthropology and philosophy um, but just before we do that could you just talk a little bit I want to um, have one example uh, you've written a book um, in the sort of Socratic dialogue uh, between an imagined dialogue between Socrates and uh, the the founder, I think, of population medicine, which is the the field which covers just what you're describing. If I understood this right, um, where everything you're not looking at people at all; you're just looking at statistics and trying to move bell curves in the in the you know in the population distribution <clears throat> and that's the way that you treat them and you so you you introduce public policy uh, to affect people's behavior um, first of all just tell us the the title of the book and where people can find it and what was the thrust behind that if, if you can summarize that in a way that a, a non-expert could understand sure, perhaps. sure. Yeah. the book is called <clears throat> moving moving mountains and the subtitle a is a, a Socratic challenge to the theory and practice of population medicine. Um, so population medicine, as you described, is sort of, it's a term that has, um, uh, that has come to the fore in the last 20 years, 20, 25 years. Uh, mm. free, people frequently use the term population health uh, in general. And, uh, and that concept emerged um, in, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and one of the architects of the idea behind population health is a man uh, who passed away. He was a British uh, physician and uh, epidemiologist. Uh, his name is Jeffrey uh, Rose. And um, he wrote a book to defend his theory of population medicine. Uh, and his book is called uh, the, the, A Theory or The Strategy for Prevention. It's for preventing disease and making the whole population healthy. And it's, as you described, it's sort of, it's a global view of population bell-shaped curves and statistics and how we can move these curves from one, you know, from an unhealthy situation to a healthy situation. And, and that's where I, I got the, you know, I, that's why I call it moving mountains, because if you look ah, at a bell -shaped yeah. curve, it yeah. looks like a mountain, so you want to move the whole mountain. Mm. And... Um, and I stole the idea, uh, and so I made it into a Socratic dialogue between Socrates and Jeffrey Rose, an imaginary dialogue. I stole that from uh, Peter Kraft, the Catholic philosopher, uh, who has a series of books 
where he does the same thing. He has imaginary dialogues between Socrates and other famous philosophers like Kant and Descartes and, and people like that, which makes the book very, you know, it, it makes books entertaining and engaging because it's a dialogue and it's, a, it's an easy way to introduce uh, the ideas in question, you know, in a dialogue format, especially a Socr Socratic dialogue, because Socrates will will try to, you know, hone in on certain fine points and force the opponent to yes. to explain themselves. That sort of thing. So, so it, it's a it's kind of a humorous um, format. But uh, Jeffrey Rose um, is, uh, in a sense, a representative of 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 the trends. Uh, and uh, he had a, but he took it to the extreme. He took it to the extreme of saying that individuals really don't matter. And it's not individuals who are healthy or not healthy. I mean, you know, and, and it's, what's healthy is really the entire population. And you have to judge the population as whether it's healthy or not. And, and it's, it's kind of a crazy idea. <laughs> uh, and I, I hope that I make, uh, I mean, I try to give him the benefit of the doubt and I, and I, I'm, 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 I think uh, I, I, uh, I'm very charitable and allow him to defend himself in my book. <laughs> you are, <laughs> but, yes. You but, are. Uh, but essentially, it's, um, what it is, it's, it's an idealism. Uh, it's a political idealism. Uh, that, so you, you can see in, in Jeffrey Rose's ideas, you can see traces of uh, Hegel, if you will, yes. uh, or, or things like that. So, and, and this has been medicalized now. It, it's, sort of, it's, used, it's, it's using medicine to validate a political idealism mm. and 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 the the prescription according to to Jeffrey Rose and this movement of population health are political prescriptions right so the idea the the, the way to health is through politics of changing society completely in a in a radical way right now the, the thing that uh, occurred to me when I was reading that is just at a practical level Let's even imagine that uh, the government introduces a policy and you, I think you, you talked about an indicator, blood pressure as an indicator for heart disease. So um, what you, you assume is that if you move the whole bell, bell curve to the, to the left or something like that, then the critical, uh, the chances of getting heart disease are much less in a, in a, in a proportion of the population. Now, first of all, if I've understood the difficulty of this, um, people are different, they're not statistics, and so for some people, it's, they can be way above the line, but actually because of their particular makeup, it just isn't a problem. And the government is effectively legislating for them as imperfect people in a way, and you know, they've got to change their diet, they can no longer enjoy going to McDonald's if that's what they want to do, because that's the end of the world. And, Whereas, whereas actually, they might, it, there might be no problem. Right, that, that's exactly right. But it, it, again, it's because his focus is completely, has nothing to do with the individual. He's not interested, or the people like that are not interested in individual health. They don't understand it. They don't know what it means. And, and, and they have a, 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 their view of population health is that all the bell-shaped curves are, you know, in, the, in their proper locations. Yes. And, ah. and it's crazy at multiple levels because moving a bell-shaped curve like this uh, assumes number one that you understand the, what's causing the, the curves to be where they are, and that yes. the, the the maneuvers that you do to move the, the the curve are not don't have any secondary side effects, if you will. Well, that's the thing that always <laughs> uh, uh, that's the point that I thought is that as as we know from 
anyone who's studied politics or economics, there are always unforeseen consequences. So let's suppose you introduce a policy and you actually manage to move that bell curve. Um, and uh, first of all, as you say, it's not absolutely obvious that that means then there's going to be less heart attacks. We don't know for another 30 years, so they're not really held accountable anyway. Um, but the other thing is that people have to do something so if they're not going to McDonald's, I can use this, and, and I don't have a problem with McDonald's if you're watching, um, that th they're not doing that, they're eating somewhere else. And you just don't know what impact that has on the people who are eating. So um, it, it might be that the particular combination leads them to, something, to do something even more unhealthy. Right, um, absolutely. And, absolutely. And the problem with that is that, that it'll be a whole range of different activities that people do instead of the thing which has now been made illegal. And it won't show up on any bell curves because it's just, it's just a, they're just adding a little tiny fraction. But the overall impact could be really detrimental and there's no way of telling. And, and I can imagine you get all of this anecdotal evidence from doctors that contradicts what the, the, the statistics tell you. And they will just then say, well, you don't understand. They will, they will turn around and say that the, the person on the at the ground level simply doesn't know what they're seeing. Right. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, we have some evidence of that. Uh, um, first of all, you're right. If they, if they do, if they intervene in a certain way, they have no way of knowing if it's beneficial or not. I mean, it, you know. Um, but, but there may be... Um, we have reason to suspect that actually it can be very harmful, not only because it makes sense that it, it would be harmful, you know, to intervene so drastically, but uh, right now you may be aware that there's a, a lot of controversy about uh, diets, you know, different diets, yes. a low carb carbohydrate diet, a low fat diet and whatnot. Yeah. So in the 1970s, uh, uh, there was a population based uh, intervention to introduce uh, to reduce, uh, you know, to, to modify the people's diets in order to optimize outcomes and change the bell-shaped curve. And, um, and people are now looking back at this and blaming those interventions on the emergence of the obesity epidemic because obesity, <laughs> you know, starts creeping up in the, in the early 1980s. And people are, are saying, well, it, you know, you know, we don't have any proof that that's uh, the reason why. I mean, again, we're talking about historical events, so there's no proof in the scientific sense of anything. Yes. Yeah. So you cannot prove or disprove. But, but, uh, but certainly that could be an illustration of, you know, one intervention causing something, you know, much more drastic uh, and unanticipated, you know, because you reduced fat in uh, people's uh, dietary habits. Maybe they compensate by eating more carbohydrates. Maybe that's what's leading to uh, an obesity epidemic and... Uh, and that sort of thing. So yes, I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a crackpot crackpot idea. It's it's really it's really insane, but it's insane. But it's 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 perpetuated because it has the uh, the veneer of uh, scientific, uh, uh, you know, respectability. You know, they're they're mathematical <laughs> and bell shaped curves and and that sort of thing. Okay, and so there, there, we can come back to this on a future date because I think there's more to explore here. But that really opens the, is a nice little segue. Into you mentioned this uh, stamp of you know, if it's science, it must be true, um, and people believe that. 
Um, and therefore, everybody wants to get whatever they're saying labeled as science. Um, that's my perception of what's going wrong. And therefore, you get a distortion of the scientific method I, I see around me. I, I did science at university a long time ago. I studied uh, physics at university. Um, and I see descriptions just in the newspapers of scientific um, ideas being um, um, described as true, authoritatively true, but they don't even follow the, the scientific method as I learned it um, some time ago. Now, you're about to do these instructional videos, and I imagine that what you're doing goes more far-reaching than simply asking scientists to do what they're supposed to do, which is stick to the scientific method. It's actually saying we could, act we could add to that method, because after all, it was philosophers who developed the scientific method in the first place. And so this could be enriched and added to through a, a good philosophy. I, I'm imagining that's what it's about. Tell me, tell me what it is. That's right. So when I started uh, my study of um, uh, Thomas, uh, Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy, uh, then what you get there, you mentioned the term philosophical anthropology, which is, you, you know, one, one course about, about man. But really, philosophical anthropology is just a subset of a philosophy of nature. Yes. Okay. So it, it's... Um, it's a philosophy that has identified correctly, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly correctly, the, the principles that um, permeate nature and that give us an understanding of how we relate to the, you know, the, the other beings in, in the natural world, including water. So how come is it that if I drink water, water becomes part of me? Mm -hmm. right? And how do I? And then when I die, I decay and I become part of the soil and so forth. So this interconnected cosmos that we are part of um, requires its own philosophical um, uh, principles in order to make sense of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, Aristotle, for the you know, had provided that framework of understanding because. Um, at the root of it, it has a, a paradox, which is called the, you know, it's the paradox of change. Uh, it, it's the, the, the primordial, uh, uh, it's the beginning really of, of uh, natural philosophy among the Greeks. They, they wanted to reflect on this interconnected and uh, interchanging world. But the question of change was a problem. How do you know that uh, something has changed? Because in the question of change, we tend to focus on what's new, in the change but in change there's always something that persists yeah you wouldn't call it change if there wasn't something persisting in the change okay yeah so so that philosophically uh, requires an explanation requires uh, a framework of understanding and Aristotle developed a, a theory with a sort of Pillar, pillar concepts, the concepts of potency and act, or matter and form, right? And, and I, I'm not going to get into, into them, but, but these are important philosophical ideas for us to be able to make sense of a changing world. Yes. In the modern period, you know, starting with Descartes, and, and that understanding was, was rejected. And instead, what was adopted was a mechanical understanding of nature, a mechanical understanding of the world that 
things are, you know, to simplify, atoms in the void and atoms rearranging themselves, okay? And therefore, organisms, trees, you know, uh, salt water or water, human beings, whatnot, is a rearrangement of, you know, material atoms or corpuscles or little, you know, beings like that. But philosophically, that, that is a problem. So if we assume, if we, if we, if we take on the reductionist, if we, you know, we're going to call that reductionist or mechanistic philosophy to, to translate the findings of modern science, then we misunderstand what nature is about. So science is great. What it does, you know, it's, it's discoveries are fantastic and they're completely accurate, right? But it's understanding, understanding them in a more global framework that is able to connect all these beings, all these natural beings Around, yes. around us, connect them together properly, that is important. And the reductionist, mechanistic view of, of, uh, of, uh, of nature is, uh, is correct in certain aspects, but incomplete. And it, it requires an additional, additional principles of understanding. Right. I'm just going to come in that because I think that point <clears throat> that you said is, is worth making very strongly. We're not here um, anti-science or anti-modern medicine. Uh, I don't want to go back a thousand years and be without all the benefits of both of those fields. Um, and it's that last point that's important. It's not that it invalid, what we're saying invalidates very real progress. Um, it's more that really there, there is an incomplete understanding of what it is and the context within which we can place all of this knowledge and understanding, which ultimately restricts the, the, um, its application, the benefits of its application. Um, and also, I'm thinking, um, suggesting, scientific and medical progress itself, that, that in the end, this incomplete understanding of what it is um, has, will add limits to the progress that can be made within those fields, great right. as they are. I suspect that's correct. I suspect that's correct. Um, although we have to qualify that. So on the one hand, science continues to make progress in a certain way. Mm, yeah. And, but where it doesn't make prog any progress is in rendering the world more intelligible. Um, especially insofar as we use a me mechanistic or reductionist framework to translate the, uh, the results of scientific experiments and scientific research into something that you know, we, we can talk about. If we yes. use a reductionist framework, a mechanistic framework, it becomes more and more unintelligible. Right, well, so, so yes. this, is, this is where philosophy is, uh, completes or adds to or provides a foundation for the work of science, primarily on the question of making, making sense, being able to make sense of the world around us. And so I, I'm thinking here, I'm immediately, my mind's turning. Um, so if science is analytical, it's breaking things up, and it's brilliant, so the methods, it's, it's a wonderful thing. At some point, you've got to synthesize, you've got to bring it all together. And the difficulty is understanding that view of the whole. That's what seems to be lacking, right. it's purpose, what it is, those, those relationships at, at the wide horizon. Um, and I, I'm aware of this, particularly in 
what I covered, the, what's called the mathematics of beauty, which is really a, a sort of a science, um, which is mathematically based, that looks at the whole. Um, and it's not in contrary to um, modern science at all. It's just a, a, a different way of looking at the same thing and therefore is complementary and, and um, could be added to what scientists do, I suspect. You're absolutely right. So that's exactly the, 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 the crux of the, uh, of the issue. Science is um, almost by force analytical because when you, when you break down or when you focus your attention on the parts, then uh, mechanisms is very helpful. Yes. You can understand the relationship between parts in mechanistic terms. So it's very, very helpful. But there's no, there's no concept, um, uh, you know, if you continue to adopt these reductionist uh, uh, view, there's no, no way to put it together as a whole, as an intelligible whole. And mm. so, so you, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, um, um, it, it, that's, so I'm optimistic because that's being recognized more and more even among scientists where um, uh, they, they realize that reductionism is not enough. And now they appeal to, there's an idea called emergence, yes. right? So they're emergence okay. theories. Yes. So they would say, well, um, you know, if we look at uh, living organisms, they cannot be understood on a reductionist basis. But somehow, you know, when things become complex, as complex as organisms, there are emergent properties that explain the whole, which is a, um, it's, it's true. Um, but the problem is that they assume that mechanism and reductionism works even for the atoms and the molecules, where, where even at that point, we need a more holistic understanding of what, what water is. Because water itself, in the correct Aristotelian Thomistic understanding, is a composite of potency and act, or of matter and form, right? So just simple water itself. So it's not that water is just a, a little planet, you know, planetary molecules of H and two sort of, yeah. you know, th this idea of the atom, which is uh, ancient, which actually we know from modern physics that this whole, this old idea of the atom that. Descartes and Newton and, and so forth had in mind as being little planets, if you will. We now know that it's wrong, right? It's, it, but we haven't, we haven't been able to, you know, to go back and say, well, wait a minute, that idea of the atom is, is wrong. What can we replace it with? with we, we continue to think in mechanistic terms and reductionist terms. It, it's, this is the pattern. I was um, just uh, discussing this in a totally different context. Um, but it seems to be the general pattern in the, in the world today is that people are starting to realize that the way of describing, you can go into almost any academic field. I was talking about music, believe it or not, where um, people are, it's, it's finally dawning on people what, what, you know, in the, the, the hallowed hallways of academia that people can't stand modern music. It's, it's finally they've realized this. <laughs> okay, everyone knew that years ago, but anyway, <laughs> finally that, that truth has permeated the, uh, the, the buildings of our universities. Um, so th the difficulty that they have is that they cannot admit uh, that, that 
that there might have been an answer years ago that, that they have to they don't have to admit errors right to me I, I, right. and they absolutely cannot do that right because, that's right because otherwise their whole raison d'etre is undermined all that university debt which they build up to get their phds <laughs> it, it explains that the whole thing was a waste of time um yeah. and, and so the, the, it's at the point of collapse is how it looks to me because, and, but it, but it's not these people who are there now are not going to change. They're they're looking for just different justifications. Right, that's exactly right. Because uh, you know I see it in science. Any uh, so they recognize the problem uh, that they're confronting, but any any um, appeal to the ancient Greeks is immediately discarded or demolished. That you know any appeal to Aristotle is is viewed as uh, uh, you know. Uh, suspects or or un unlikely to to solve the problem so i'm not sure how how to how to deal with that problem i don't think it's going to go through academia so as you mentioned yeah. I, I i'm trying i have a little project to try to bring these ideas to the public directly so <laughs> the, the good news now is that it's pretty inexpensive to put together uh, a website and a course yes. and yeah. try to tell people you know what um uh, tell them about these ideas that are old and then applicable now they all they need to be uh, dust it up a little bit, you know, they need to, to be clarified and, and then we, we need to see how they can apply to the, the very good findings of modern science, right? Yes, and, and the trailblazer for me, and I'm not an expert philosopher at all, is uh, Father Norris Clark, who um, actually Father Brad, the person who introduced me to, to the writings of Norris Clark is Father Brad Elliott, who we're, gonna, we're meeting for lunch next week, and actually um, has just done a podcast with us. And by the time that you're watching this, he will have been a couple of weeks ago, actually. But uh, uh, to those who are listening or watching. Um, but he um, pointed me in the direction of these really quite slim books. But he, he is a genuine, he died um, just a few years ago, but he was a genuine philosopher who knew how to um, think uh, Thomistically, um, based upon the evident, new evidence from the world around him. Um, and so he wasn't trying to fit everything today into this sort of medieval box of the way that people describe it. He was using the underlying principles and applying them. And it seems to me that's what you're saying needs to be done. We need to acknowledge that the data is different now. And so we might actually draw different conclusions from Aristotle or St. Thomas in some cases even when thinking Thomistically. Right, absolutely right. Yeah, because in, 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 in those days, the distinction between the, the proper work and focus of what we now call science uh, was not clear as opposed to the, the proper focus of philosophy. The two were frequently intertwined in the philosophy of nature, so throughout the, the medieval period, when in fact, there are, essentially there are two different sciences. There's the natural philosophy, which is a science in the sense that it's, it's aiming at providing certain, certain knowledge, right? Knowledge we can be mm -hmm. sure of, a science. And then there's the um, experimental sciences, the modern experimental sciences that also provide certain knowledge. But it's a knowledge that for the experimental sciences tends to be focused on the quantified aspect of, of the natural beings. 
right? And yes. and the two work very you know very very well together. In the medieval in the in the Middle Ages, the distinction between the two was not clear, was blurred. So. Uh, in essence, the divorce between philosophy and science was necessary and, and, and I think helpful. Um, but there's been, uh, the separation has been acrimonious and, and the experimental sciences have adopted a different philosophy uh, right. by default, by default, uh, the philosophy of mechanism and reductionism, which they don't need and they can shed and, and take on the philosophy, you know, the, the, uh, the philosophy of nature which is more appropriate to bolster and and you know make make the the marriage between science and philosophy more fruitful. Yeah. So we've we've talked we've alluded to this example of um, how when you get deeper and deeper into the analysis and so the the assumption of uh, modern science it seems if I'm if I can say it in a broad brush way. It says, we know what all the parts are doing. You just have the vector sum, and then we know what the whole is doing. Um, and the, the problem is that the deeper you get into it, we find that things don't behave scientifically. We can call it that. The, the behavior, they don't behave me mechanically. Mechanically, right, right. yeah. So there's something very different going on when you look at a quark and when you look at an atom or when you look at an object such as a, a right. person uh, right. that is made of... And furthermore, you have these um, these different modes of behavior. And what you're describing, what you use this word emergent order, which I'm interested in. We've done a past podcast talking about this, this idea because it seems to have an impact when you talk about society, about mankind as well. Um, that society as a whole behaves differently from individual people um, in, in some ways. You can observe trends which are not observable when you're just looking at one. Um, and therefore, um, what one thing it occurs to me that uh, philosophy can add is the idea of, uh, if the, te the technical phrase would be substance, but something is an entity. It, it, it is a reality. It's not simply, you know, a person is a person, a noun, and that actually is important in in terms of what it is it is not simple i am not simply a collection of atoms a, a person is a distinct entity a substance and actually that's what science appears to be grasping for but can't bring themselves to do it um is that is that fair yeah, that's exactly right that's yes. exactly right i mean the rejection of substance at the beginning of the modern period um was explicit I mean, the the rejection of the concept of substance, the concept of form, right? Substantial form. Yes. Um, so that's what we need to 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 recover, to understand properly, understand how that works, and then uh, apply it. Because you're right, the science has no way to uh, to account for whole beings, for individual beings. It can only see them as collection of things. Yes. Right. It has it has no concept to explain. What what makes you more than just a bag of calcium and water and proteins and 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 that sort of thing, and um, and um, right and but but I, as I said the the concept of form and substantial form and substance, the the nice thing is that even though you have these emergent sort of structures, the same principles 
permeate throughout the, the different substructures, right? Philosophical principles. Correct. Yes, the same yes. philosophical principles yeah. are, are present even when you go down to the level of the, of the medical, down to a certain level. So, so here, I think, you know, th there's philosophical work to, to do, which I'm interested in. You know, do we stop somewhere, <laughs> you know, uh, below which we don't, uh, the, these principles are no longer, have, you know, I mean, it's not that they're no longer applicable, but, but they need to be understood properly. Uh, right. We, we have a way of talking about atoms and quarks as if they are little substances, little bodies. Yeah. But, but they're not, right? So, so we, we get fooled. That, that's interesting because I remember I had a conversation with you in the past and um, what is the fundamental substance, the building block? And you, if I perhaps explain this a little more, but you said it's not the atom or the quark, although that's what the scientists would say. Everything's, it's actually... The molecule. It's it's at the level of the molecule, although I wouldn't call it uh, the molecule itself. I'm, okay. Uh, I, I think the the concept that we need to understand is the concept of element. Ah. Okay. What is okay. an element? Yes. Okay. Right. What is what is a, a physical yes. element? And um, and so that's a work in progress. But but you're right. You're right. There's a level of element, and then below the level of the element, then we're talking about something that Aristotle would would consider primary matter and and it has a, yes. so what science subatomic physics is talking about is i think the the organization and the the disposition what's called the disposition of primary matter and the evidence that you would cite and this point has to be made that this is a, a wide open field that we need philosophers to think about this right. because it right. hasn't been addressed. So right, it's very exciting. Answer. It's not like you're saying, I've got the answers. You're just saying, right, this is what we need to, to do. But the, right. the, the evidence that you're looking at, if I remember, um, is the, the natural cohesion of these things, that a quark doesn't exist on it. It jumps, it wants to join in with something. And at the some level, there are things that, that are happy to exist as on their own. Right. And, Whereas right. some definitely aren't. Uh, Correct. Correct. Um, and we recognize, so the, the human mind, I mean, that's the definition of, of a rational mind. Yes. Is to be able to recognize um, these, you know, whatever is a substance as a substance. Okay. Yes. And to, so, so we naturally distinguish, which, which actually fools people because... Uh, or, or scientists or, you know, who are, you know, if they're adopting, uh, on, uh, in, on the one hand, they think they're adopting a reductionist, mechanistic understanding of the world. On the other hand, they intuitively recognize substances as such, right? And well, they, yeah. But, um, so, so it's important. I mean, that's the rule of philosophy. The rule of philosophy is to make explicit these ideas so we can talk about them and, and, uh, and we see that, that this has consequences. Going back to your population medicine thing, there is somebody trying to put all, pack all this together and describing a false entity. <laughs> because, and, and, the, and deep, the, the, deep down, the problem there is philosophical, a misunderstanding of man, of society, uh, of community, Correct. Correct. Um, that leads to this wild view that has consequences. And you talked about that, that... You know, all, all the obesity due to um, opting for low-fat, high-sugar. So, right, you know, right. It does, it does. The concept of health 
you know, properly speaking, pertains only to substances, pertains to holes. It doesn't pertain to populations. You know, it's, it's only, um, it's a bad analogy to talk about the population as if it were a substance. Right. Although a population in certain aspects, you know, can have, you know, some cohesion through its culture and whatnot, but that requires its own sort of um, philosophical treatment and, uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it pervades everything and, and it's very violent. So what it is, it's violence against nature because what we're talking about, you know, the proper philosophy is a natural philosophy. It's a philosophy that explains nature. Mm. And, and if we deviate from that, it's funny because that's in Aristotle's language, the term violence, violent motion is opposed to natural motion. You have natural uh -huh. motion, you have violent motion. Okay. okay? So if, if we misunderstand nature, then we're engaging in violence. <laughs> you know, at uh, at so I'm, many different levels. And I, I, I'm thinking that um, just to come back to the idea of health, and maybe with this we'll round the, the conversation <laughs> off. There are, there are so many directions I want to go. I'm going to invite you back again, Michelle. But um, it seems to me that we can't consider what it is to be healthy without an understanding of what a man ought to be. It, not just what he is, but what he ought to be. In other words, there is that what philosophers would call teleological understanding that we are going somewhere in life and we're, we have to be equipped to do it. We have a purpose and we can't begin to describe health, I, I think, without that. And so it's not surprising in some ways that the idea of health would just be ignored. It's, it's, a, it's an awkward thing to deal with um, if you don't acknowledge purposes and an end for man because that gets you into metaphysics and right. faith and theology Correct. we can't have that yes and then if you acknowledge that each person has a telos as you said or yes. a purpose and whatnot it restricts your uh, ability to you know to manipulate that person or to use that person for your own purposes or to to intervene so you want to help and when you help meanings you want to you want to allow that person to continue to flourish and pursue you know the ends the telos that uh uh, that they're meant to pursue, uh, but instead we, you know, we 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 intervene, we manipulate, we uh, we uh, we do violence. We do violence to to persons. And with so much in the in the way that society is organised, it's very difficult for somebody in a, a centralised building, remote from people, to know what's good for me. Whereas right. you, as my doctor. Right. Can look at me and say, no, 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 that's not good for you. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, that is, because you know me. Um, because while human beings do have a general end, each person, uh, we understand that through the particular, and everybody has a unique path right. towards that. And if we don't acknowledge that, we're in deep trouble, I think. I agree. I agree, but it's, um, so not only does this, the, the central people, the people in the central office don't have the knowledge, um, that's true. I'm just concerned also that they don't really care. I mean, you know, I think maybe not all of them, but some of them. I mean, it's the conflict between power and love, right? Yes. Power wants the central office and because it can dominate, whereas love will recognize that it's, you know, caring our personal relationships yes. and, and are done, you know, it's, it's mediated locally from person to person. And, and again, 
this is not pointing fingers at faceless bureaucrats and saying they're all evil over there. And we're, right. This is about human nature. Everybody is part good, part bad. Correct. And, and if we're not in, on, in a role that's natural to help, inevitably there is a distortion in our motives in what we do. And it would happen if I was there. Correct. That's right. Yeah. And, and then as, to go back to your broader point about, so it's the, if the culture has a misunderstanding about men, then it makes sense to try to, you know, the population health approach has a, 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 a prima facie um, plausibility, right? Yes. You don't yes. think about it. So, so it's, you're right. I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, Trying to, I don't. I don't want to paint the bureaucrats as, <laughs> as evil doers, and many, you know, most of them are not. Uh, so, so, uh, but some, some of them maybe <laughs> uh, not evil doers. But, yeah. but you know, they, there's a certain attraction to being uh, in a place where you can, you know, do policy and affect, you know, the whole, the yeah. whole society. All right. I, I think just let's let's finish on a, a, a note. You mentioned that you you could talk a little bit about beauty and medicine, and this is the way of beauty podcast. So why don't we just why don't we just close on that? Sure. I, I uh, I've been listening. You know, your episodes are so, so wonderful. I've been listening to them. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One, you, in fact, I don't know that it was not in a, in an episode. It was something you shared with me. There's some studies showing that. Patients do better in a beautiful hospital, right? Yes. It's a hospital. Yes. And, and that makes sense. We have an intuitive sense that that's correct. And I'm, I'm glad empirical studies are validating that notion. Um, but to go back to your mathematics of beauty uh, question and how does that pertain to, to medicine and health? I think the way it pertains... So, so medicine is not mathematical in that sense. Because medical care is about relationships. Yes. Um, but it is in the sense that you, you, you talked about the, the number three, uh, three, the trinity, right? The number three, because the relationship between the doctor and the patient is not a dualistic relationship, because if you only consider it in a dualistic relationship, then it becomes a power struggle. You know, the, the patient wants to, you know, what's patient autonomy versus the doctor's prerogatives. And, and then they say, well, let's compromise. Let's find a balance. No. Yes. So, so that's the wrong way of, of thinking about it. The, the right way is both working for the sake of health. Okay, so so health becomes the the the, the triangle in that relationship. Right. So the, the the third point, um, which which is how um, Aristotle talks about friendship, right? So friendship, two people getting together for the the sake of a transcendent third, or you know, I think that's uh, Robert Father. Bishop Barron's uh, rendition of it and that sort of thing. So, so the number three is present in the doctor-patient relationship. And, and that's also misunderstood nowadays because people who, you know, are concerned about this, you know, violent and uh, uh, depersonalized healthcare system we're in, they say, well, we need to reestablish the doctor-patient relationship. Yes, that's, that's very good, but they don't understand it. You know, they don't, they don't see what, what binds it together and and what what transcends the, the two individuals that are part of the relationship and this is the health not only of the patient but of the doctor right exactly as well exactly. because the, right. he is fulfilling his role as a person right and as you say that that that's another way of i always go back to saint augustine so he talks about the lover the beloved and the love right 
as a separate entity. And and th that and he said that when when we have um, going back to Saint Thomas, each person, each thing that is is it is aliquid and res, the the thing and the other thing. In other words, everything is in relation to everything else. But when people are in relation, I am in relation to you. To me, you're the other one. But to you, I'm the other one. Right. And and so we are in relation with each other. And what makes that uh, relationship um, properly ordered is love. Right. Exactly. Uh, even between interviewee. An interviewer, there is a, when they're fulfilling those roles well, um, it doesn't become contentious. We know lots of contentious interviews, but actually, it's one where each person is uh, fulfilling a role that is bringing forth something that is wonderful to see. Um, so I'm going to end there. I'm hoping that this has been an interview which <laughs> has brought forth such. Uh, such a, a shining light of something that is good. I've certainly enjoyed it. Um, and so, so have I there. Thank you so much for, uh, for uh, bringing me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you once again. And um, we're definitely going to see you again. All right. The Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.